0: Welcome to the Don't Die podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. All right, here we are. It's another episode of Don't Die, and um, I realized we just Chuck and I got all excited just to have a podcast together. I've known Chuck a long time. He does the same thing as me, chemical dependency counselor, and in the OC and we talk a yep. lot and we worked at the same place for a little while. So we've been, you know, the first few episodes were just catching up and talking about what's going on, but I realized we haven't laid down the framework of what don't die really is. And I want to I want to tell you I've been saying this to clients for 15, 20 years when they're going out to relapse and they've had enough. I was the I was always known as the person that could talk some sense into an addict, right? The very first treatment center I worked at at music, uh, a Musician's Assistance Program, I was the last person you had to talk to if you were going to leave and fuck everything and I don't want to be here. And that continued at Los Cenas Hospital in Pasadena for nine years. And that's been throughout my career is when somebody, when everybody, when the whole staff has tried to talk to somebody, the The last person they send in is me to try to talk some sense into the addict who wants to go get high, who wants to leave. And I just started years ago saying, Don't die. That, you know, as I was, you know, because a lot of times you can't talk somebody out of it, Chuck. You just, you yeah, know, they're abso- absolutely. Leave. They're dead they're set. Gonna they're going to go. Yep. And so I just started saying this truly heartfelt thing Don't die. Mm-hmm. And then, I guess it's just a part of my bone marrow because in the documentary, Bob and the Monster, at a certain point during one of the interviews, I said, everything does work out if you don't die. And so mm. don't die has become a theme throughout my life to tell addicts like, listen, I don't expect that you're, you're gonna turn things around here or you're gonna just become totally willing and get sober and be sober the rest of your life. I don't expect that. That only happens one out of 10 times of people in treatment. Maybe if you're lucky, two, a good treatment center, two out of 10 times, a regular treatment center, one out of 10 times, a shitty treatment center, one out of 20 times. So <laughs> nine out of 10 people in general oh. that I'm talking to are not gonna stay sober the rest of their life and, they, and they're gonna return back to active use. And I've just been saying, don't die. And, and I think that needs to be a, a national campaign. I think people need to start telling their children, I love you, don't die. Instead of, you, I'm not going to pay your bill, or, I'm, or you're not. we're not going to talk to you, all that tough love shit. Because when, if, if they do die, you're going to fucking live with that for the rest of your life. That the last thing you said to your kid was some negative thing, and fuck you, and you're just really heartfelt. Tell your children who are on opiates, who are at risk of dying, and they're not doing what they should be doing. Just tell them with a heartfelt, p- parental, loving tone don't die. Mm-hmm. Right? And I want a don't die hashtag on Facebook and Twitter and all this shit. Because children are dying like flies like never before. And I figure maybe we're getting, my theory is we're shoving the solution down 19 and 22 year old kids' throats who don't want it. They don't even know what the problem is. So there's this huge me- me- you know mechanized industry called the recovery industry that's insisting on abstinence and, and sobriety for kids who, who are not really done using
1: yet. But you know, a lot of people might not understand that yet. I mean, we, when I think about what we talk about, we talk about it from looking at it at the last as the last 20 years of being in this industry and and watching all this happen. A lot of people don't understand that. Yes, it's obvious to you that your child has a problem because everything's fallen off, but they haven't gone through all the struggles or they haven't hit that emotional or physical bottom yet. So to them, it's not nearly as bad as it looks. As a parent,
0: yeah, it is not. And if you remember, I remember, I guess, I think, I guess, I've always had a nineteen-year-old's mentality. But nineteen-year-olds <laughs> don't think they're going to die. That's one of the main components of the nineteen-year-old psyche:
1: mm-hmm.
0: is not death. Death doesn't mean anything. So, so when you just say, you know, in a, to bring that consciousness into them that you're doing something that you could die from. You know, I'm not saying you're going to get killed by terrorists or you're going to get lung cancer if you smoke at 19. But I am saying if you're taking a combinations of, of prescription drugs and you're shooting heroin, you don't know where it comes from, and you know that the heroin is laced with fentanyl, and you've been going in and out of rehab, a loving thing to say to that person is don't die. And and put all the moral judgments and what they should be doing or what they should be uh, uh, kind of saying or, or thinking aside because they're 19 or they're 20 or they're 22 or they're 24. And, and really just this passionate movement I want to start. It doesn't have to be based around anything. It doesn't, it's just tell addicts in your life, don't die. I, you know, I love you, don't die. I say it all the time to kids all the time and it's pretty effective it it's such a loving thing to say to somebody at a critical highly emotional time when they're saying fuck you and you know and I don't <coughs> care and all this kind of stuff and I don't want to be here and all you want is money and all the different things that are said as the as the addict the unsurrendered addict exits treatment, Chuck, and you've heard it all. Exiting treatment or <laughs> exiting the house if you have them in your
1: house. I mean, that's even worse because it gets really personal.
0: Yeah. You don't love me. You never you don't care me, about nothing me. I've ever
1: done is good enough for <laughs> all you. All you that
0: and stuff that all you parents have heard. We've heard yeah. it. We got grown adult kids. We've heard it. You know, it's hard to hear. That's the other thing that therapists don't fucking get. I, my son told me when he was 15, I hate you. I, was, I still remember how painful that was. It's just, you got to sit with that. You know, he's, he has trauma. He has these mixed up feelings in him that were caused in part, if not in whole, by me. I can't then turn around and say, you can't speak to your father that way.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Guess what? He just did. (laughs) So yes, he can. And it sucks. And then what do we do? We get angry or we get hurt or we get hurt and then anger later. And either way, it doesn't work. So You're you're right. That whole don't die thing is like, you know what? Hey, I I love you. You Uh, can't stay here. I'm not paying for your phone anymore. I'm not paying for your insurance or your car. I'm not going to give you money. But don't die. Don't die. I love
0: you. And so that on a parental level, I want that from a clinical level. All you counselors, all you MFTs, all you LCSWs, all you owner operators of rehabs who have, you know, what's the biggest problem of rehab? I mean, I've been dealing, I've been working in rehab since 1999. How long is that too fucking long right it's 18 years at this <laughs> point isn't it yeah that's <laughs> too long <clears throat> <And> so <laughs> so anyways i've been working and, and two things have come up in my in my um career which is i started working at a hospital and i'm not the brightest uh, uh student right so I was probably a C student in chemical dependency school, which is really hard to,
1: oh, <laughs> to be. <laughs> it's, not,
0: it's not the brain trust of America. <laughs> and I was a C student. I thought you were smart. I'm smart, but I'm not book smart. <laughs> no, but, but you you'd read books. <laughs> I'm not that kind of read stuff I don't like smart. You were a college student before I you were doing I was for music. years and years. <laughs> Professional
1: That's college student. That's a whole student. other
0: story. Because I was okay. going to become a psychologist, and I thought, I went to college for like six years, seven years. I got to get my transcripts and figure it out. <laughs> I only right. had like not even a year full of credits <laughs> after six years of college. That sounds like my so high school. I, that you know, horrible. I was expecting I'll go back to school for a year and I'll become a psychologist. And once I got my transcripts right in front of me, it's, uh, like, it's going to be four years just like everybody else.
1: You know, I got, I got to tell people, if you don't know Bob, but you think you know a little bit about his story, do watch the movie. He brought it up, Bob and the Monster. Watch the movie. You can rent it on, you know, the digital thing or you can go buy it, man. It's worth seeing. I use it in groups yeah Um, it's fun i mean it's 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 really it's it's a good movie and it tells the story it's done well and there's a lot of good music and it's it's just a fun watch
0: it really is about me and my friends too which you know it's weird when there's a movie about you like what do you say about it or i've talked to some people who have documentaries about themselves and it's really it's a it's a strange thing to have a documentary about yourself you you know it's (laughs) Peculiar thing to refer yeah. to. Yeah. But it, what I like about Bob and the Monsters is it's mostly about me and my friends. Like we had this bond. We still do. All my friends are in the movie calling me an asshole or saying I'm an angel or whatever else. A lot of, a lot and, of asshole. <laughs> a lot of
1: asshole. Yeah.
0: So, so, so getting back to my point. So in I want clinicians to start saying, don't die to clients in a loving, compassionate way instead of, uh, this kind of sterile kind of discharge, I, I watch them all the time. And in rehabs, one of the main problems that you have, you have staff meetings about constantly is AMAs.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Again, leaving against medical advice. How do we keep them here? Keep them here? Yeah. And, and that is, you can, you can be a good clinician and try to sit down and reason with the client, Oh, that's what I try to do. Or you can be a profit oriented treatment center and just minimize the, the challenging things for addicts. Right. And, and that is what I think a lot of treatment centers are doing, which is just minimize the rules. You can have your phone. You can, you, you don't have to go to group, which to me, that's just like, we'll just, we'll just have you pay for treatment, but you don't get any. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Just to keep heads on beds. So, <laughs> so. A, I haven't heard and, that in a
1: long time. Got to keep heads on beds, but it's part yeah. of
0: business. So, well, here's I'm a I'm a businessman. I have rehabs, and I know you have to make payroll. You have to pay your bills. You have to pay your insurance. There's a lot of cost that goes to rehab. So I understand that that you have to run at a certain occupant, the you know occupancy. To break even and make sure everybody's getting paid and stuff like that. So I understand the entrepreneurial business side of rehab, but I do not understand changing rehab to being more accommodating for addicts so that they'll stay when then you're not offering them really anything other than a safe, contained, drug-free environment, which is valuable. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. But anyways, I want clinicians to feel empowered to say compassionately, don't die. And we're always here, you know what I mean? And, and that don't die message, I want it to spread to young people. I want kids to be saying it to each other. I want the relapse crowds of all these rehabs in Florida and California to start using it. I want the kids to start saying it to each other. When you're sober for two months and your friend has decided they're going to go back to active use, just tell them lovingly, you know, don't die. And I want don't die to spread across this land because all the rest of it is all just agenda oriented. Like what treatment modality you believe in, 12 steps absence based, harm reduction, um, you know, naltrexon implants, uh, you know, all the different arguments about what to do about the opiate overdose, you know, the opiate epidemic and the opiate overdose death rate, which I'm certainly in those conversations. But everybody has an opinion about that. I think everybody can really get behind a don't die message. Well, a hard to I think it's a, <laughs> think a pretty simple concept. It's <laughs> a pretty simple concept <laughs> for a uh, bipartisan Uh, support I want to hear the (laughs) argument
1: against don't die (laughs) what is
0: what is the opposing view to don't die there will be one well there is I'm Um, sure sure there's some hardcore 12-stepers who will say some have to die so (laughs) those of us can live (laughs) oh god
1: you know when when my brother died someone said that to me and that was the first man that almost lost his life in an AA meeting while I was there you know he had to die so you could live what a bunch of shit you know, there's a
0: lot of sayings. That one, I've just always been repulsed by. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also a lot of this trying to get the message out to young people about, about um, you know, maloxone and safety measures and education about drugs. A lot of the um, the kind of resistance to that, that, that that encourages drug use or just making it seem okay. Um, I, I just find it fascinating that, that you have a totally—it's totally okay to prescribe opiates to fifteen-year-old kids who hurt themselves in high school, but it's not okay to talk to them as adults. See, you, you understand? They're medicating them mm-hmm. as adults, right? Right?
1: Right? They're,
0: this country medicates <laughs> children constantly with adult medications that the drug companies who create them themselves don't say, "Don't do that." Mm-hmm. Don't use antipsychotics and antidepressants on young minds. They constantly say it in the, in the warnings right. of the drugs. Right. Doctors decide they know better and they use it off-label to prescribe Paxil that caused several suicides in teenagers in the 1990s, right? Right, And so that was
1: a big deal.
0: Uh, yeah, it was big. One kid flew an airplane into a building. Do you remember that?
1: No. Yeah, it he was wasn't, a
0: 16-year-old boy was put on Paxil. or uh, I, I don't want to misspeak. I think it's Paxil. Or Zoloft. I'm not sure, but he was on an antidepressant that the the drug company recommendation is should not be used in minors. Right. He was on it off label by a doctor, and he stole his dad's airplane and crashed it into a building in Houston, Texas.
1: And he wasn't an ISIS. He was no. He was just. He was just a kid. kid. <laughs> just, just a kid. Well, it's a,
0: terrible it was, to laugh about, but <laughs> but so for decades it's been okay in America to treat. 13- and 14- and 15-year-old kids as grown adults when it, when it relates to taking adult medicines. But it's not okay to talk to 13- and 14- and 15-year-old and 16-year-old and even 18-year-old, 19-year-old kids about the dangers of drugs and the safe use of drugs. That's a no-no. You know, even though we know 10 million Americans are abusing opiates. We can't talk about
1: it. And that, that's the, the craziest part about that is that we only hear the main stories. I mean, how many lives, how many families are torn apart because of their children's behavior? I mean, he was successful, but how many kids tried to kill themselves and ended up locked up? How many kids, just their lives went off the rails? How many kids lost direction and it changed the course of their lives forever? Because well, why because is, is it, that... it, without it being a, Without flying a, a plane into uh, to a building. I well, mean.
0: here's the thing about the, the American young... Person's experience. Okay, so now we have opiates being prescribed to everyone in America just starting about seven, eight, nine years ago. Everyone in America is going to be exposed to heroin. The drug companies, the FDA, the government um, uh, decided yeah, let's just uh, get opiates into the bloodstreams of all Americans, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea was Mm. that addict population would be affected by that, but the non addict population would not. (laughs) I I don't understand. I don't know if any of you folks at home have taken heroin, but but it's a really kind of profound experience, right? right? And that you're gonna take these pills on an ongoing basis is going to habituate your use. It was the perfect plan to addict millions of Americans to heroin, the Oxycontin epidemic, right? And I don't want big pharma to get off the hook, and I don't want pain management clinics to get off the hook, and I don't want doctors to get off the hook, and I don't want these fucking scumbag politicians who are in the pockets of big pharma and and the medical community in America to get off the hook now that it's become a heroin problem. Because make no mistake, Oxycontin is heroin. There's no difference. Mm -hmm. It metabolizes into the same thing in the human biology. Do you got that, mom? (laughs) Have you got that, dad? Have you got that, teacher? Have you got that, social worker? Have you got that? HR person at your company, OxyCotton and heroin are the same fucking
1: thing. Yeah, but what's the point? Oh, that is the point. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Well, they started
0: the point is they started exposing millions of Americans to heroin to, to yeah, the effects yeah. of what heroin feels like thinking that those people aren't going to become heroin addicts because there's only a small percentage of addicts in America. Right?
1: <laughs> right. Only that, that nine to 13% <laughs> are bad get...
0: people are drug addicts. These yeah. good people will not become drug addicts. Well, guess what? The good people became drug addicts. And now all of a sudden Washington and the medical community are having summits. They want to mm-hmm. help. Why? Because the good people became heroin addicts. Story of justice in America. So I'm ready for any dialogues you got. Um, the the idea of just get the message out. Don't die. Don't die. You'll figure it out. Young people will figure it out. I don't. One of the things I don't really uh, like about my side of the argument, which is the twelve step, abstinence based treatment program model. Is When I went to my first treatment in 1988, I was 27 years old. I was the youngest person in the rehab Mm -hmm. in Hazelden, Minnesota, Center City, Minnesota, 1988. The winter, like February of 1988, um, I was 27.
1: Wasn't it a lot of alcoholics too? It
0: was a lot of alcoholics. It was a lot of coke addicts from New York. Coke was still big See, in the 80s. That takes a long that <laughs> takes a much longer
1: time to get to that point doing cocaine and drinking.
0: Yeah, but but what I'm saying is if you go into any treatment center in America right now, twenty seven would be one of the older people in the treatment center. Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Right. The so the demographic the has
0: shifted completely in treatment. But guess what? Hazelden, where I went, is where the Minnesota model was established, which is a biological, psychological, sociological approach to addiction. A biopsychosocial approach, right? Mm-hmm. The Minnesota model. We all learned it in school if you went to chemical dependency school or, or ther- therapy therapeutic schools. Um, the, the Minnesota model does not work on millennials. I can tell you that right now. It does not work. And so... Mm-hmm but the system is so monstrous and dinosauric. You know what I mean? Dinosauric if that's a word, not a word. <laughs> it's just like, you got to see me at home. I'm just like, it's dinosauric. like Godzilla walking through Tokyo. You know what I mean? It is not, it is, it is, it is archaic and institutionalized and bureaucratic. And it is set in stone that if you have a drug problem in America, your insurance company will cover you to go to 12 step to absence based Minnesota model treatment and only 12 step absence based Minnesota model treatment. And I, who am a free thinker, if you don't know me, I want to try everything and anything. I want to try golfing. I want to try right. uh, taking, them, uh, taking them and getting jobs and filling, you know, peer-to-peer job, getting, you know, uh, applications filled out. Not just sitting in a classroom so you can bill for it, learning how to put a resume together. That's the bullshit of the rehab industry now. Saying, oh yeah, we're going to teach them how to get jobs. No, I want to take them by the scruff of their neck to El Pollo Loco and say, can we have an application please? And fill out the application and get the, and have them well, get an you interview. You can do that. You can do that as you an experiential. You can and bill for it.
1: Can't you do it as an experiential group?
0: you can be you know but what are they going to pay 40 bucks and and the and the and, the, and the, if you have them sit with a the one on one they pay 160 bucks which do you think the treatment center is going to do
1: <laughs> well they could do both you know I mean, i'm i'm trying to trying to find a way to make make it work and cover the bases
0: no my solution is to create an, a new 21st century millennial tooled treatment and charge a per day rate on an, uh, uh, with the insurance industry, let us try something different. Let's have a trial of something different, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that I found works is um, there's a thing called reparenting, right? So a lot of therapists are trying to reparent their clients. I, think, I like, I like you know, not being secretive about things. I tell my clients, I'm reparenting you. Don't you understand? Don't you see what's happening? You look at me like now like a father. And so this therapeutic bond we have eventually is going to lead to you, I call it kill the Buddha. You are done with me. You're now going to go out on your own. And at the end, you're going to have to demonize me in some way. You're going to have to say, oh, Bob's full of shit or Bob never has time for me. You're going to feel yourself trying to feel abandoned by me. And that means you've learned everything you can learn from me and now you should go, you know, but you should look look at within yourself of what the mechanisms of your psychopathology, what you're doing. So six months ago, I was a hero. I was the greatest guy in your life. I loved you unconditionally. I'll do whatever you say, Bob. And now I'm a fucking asshole and you, you, you know, you need to go on your way. It's a, it's the hero. It's like this journey That's that funny. people take and kind of
1: how it starts though. It kind of starts as you're the dick and then they get to know you a little bit and then you're a dick at the end too, because <laughs> at the beginning you're telling them a little bit of truth. Of course, nice because truth without compassion is brutality. So I, I try yeah. to be a little bit nice about it, but I, you know, you, you said something, you said the millennial, uh, way of uh, approach of, of dealing with this. And it's funny cause even from what I've seen, even the older people have the same kind of, they identify with the millennials because they're a different group because we gave them God's own medicine, right? We gave them God's own medicine and they were normal people going through life. They weren't alcoholics or addicts their whole life. And then they get strung out on painkillers yeah, because they have legitimate pain. And so they're just like the youngsters. They, you know what? They don't see anything wrong. Their lives are, are good except for this one little thing.
0: Yeah. There's a, there's, there isn't a, a high functioning addict population that trickles through it's a small population. Like I see it, I'm gonna see it tonight, I'm gonna to do a group out of my place in Malibu. There's like, I call them the real adults in the rehab. There's like five of them out of mm-hmm. like 25 or 30. And they're real adults. You, you would, when you walk in there, you would think they're <laughs> staff members. You know, cause you got 20, 20 kids from all over the United States running around mm-hmm. with the ba- baggy pants hanging down. And then you've got these five adults. <laughs>
1: That look like normal people. They're like in disguise, <laughs> and,
0: and and so the rehabs used to look like that. It used to be like twenty five adults and like five like baggy rich, pants kids, rich baggy pants kids. So, so you know, they but they do identify because there is a certain addict personality. It's very selfish and very. I I love addicts because they're entertaining. They're you know rarely boring though there is a new boring brigade of addicts <laughs> <What's> <laughs> you know that? what i mean no, i haven't no. found them well, I because well the, because because the there's so creative. many normal people becoming drug addicts oh. normal people are kind of boring
1: <laughs> that's funny that's really funny uh, because true. most of them are just they're the most off the wall even when you, you take the dope out of them they're still off the wall it wasn't what i did while i was on drugs that made me nuts it's what what i did after i was off drugs yeah, you know that made me feel like I wasn't a part of still the uncomfortableness, what, right? But that's that's what made me fit amongst the freaks and the, the geeks and the weirdos, and, and I'm comfortable with them.
0: Yeah, when I went to when I went to my first NA meetings in the early '80s, it was like there was crazy people in there. There was like I don't want to name names, but there was some crazy mfers in there. You you know some of them. I was just in awe, like this is pretty cool, man. I mean, I don't want to stop doing <laughs> it's, drugs, it's but this is pretty zoo. cool. It's a full-on people <laughs> zoo, and and now I go in there, and it's just like it doesn't feel the same. It's just a lot of a lot of um, a lot of non-free thinkers now.
1: Well, yeah, that, it's that's all. Of, it's, a lot of my life was good. I hurt my back, and now I'm in rehab.
0: Well, the example being like. Is a millennial, is a 20-year-old kid from New Jersey who's gone through 90 days of treatment in Southern California, is he really going to go to Rodeo and go, this is, I feel at home here, <laughs> right? Or or would they feel more at home at the Costa Mesa NA Center? You know what I mean? And we've got to stop, not give up hope that we can encourage young people to go to 12-step. We just got to find where they might find it interesting, you know, that was what happened with me. Lucky thing for me is, you know, I knew a lot of musicians who were sober and they started taking me to meetings and there was a lot of musicians that I respected and they were sober. And, and so it always seemed appealing to me. It always did. Mm-hmm. Did I want to stop? No. But in the back of my mind, did I always know, like, once I do want to stop, it'd be cool to hang out with Pete and those guys. It'd be cool. Like it was always a positive. The one hurdle I had was God because I don't believe in God. But the attraction of the people who were in it and how cool they were, that pulled me. That pulled me into it and made me think positively about it. And then of course, there's some things about it I didn't like, which was the God stuff and and all that. But the people attracted me. I have a feeling millennials are not attracted to the 12-step people. I really believe that here in Southern California, because this is where I live and this is where I go to meetings in Malibu and LA and Orange County and Laguna. And I just don't think it's appealing to young people. Do you understand
1: what I'm saying? Yeah, but I don't know I was how you 22 make it when appealing. I,
0: okay. I was 22 when I went to my first meeting with Brendan Mullen, who's dead now, the mm-hmm. mask Man. Yeah. And he took me to a meeting. I remember one of the girls on Saturday night live was there. And Saturday Night Live was like bigger than it is now. It was the biggest thing in the world. And this woman from Saturday Night Live was there. And I just thought, oh my God, this is so cool. Right. Now, mm-hmm. now, and Brendan was there and people, this girl Jenny that I knew was cool and just people that I knew were cool. And they didn't preach at me and they didn't fucking shove shit down my throat. And I, I really always had a positive feeling about it. Always Fountain and Fairfax. You ever go there? No. Fountain and Fairfax was this clubhouse in LA. Um, had a big church, had big meetings in the church and little meetings in the little church building um, maybe next door.
1: Did.
0: It was a huge meeting for okay. decades. Yeah. Right? I went there in 1983 and and I always just thought this is cool. And the the first meeting I went to inside that little building behind the church, that building burned down and every time I drive past it this is 30 five years ago i went to that meeting there my first meeting and every time i drive down fountain and i drive past there i think about that little building that burned down that's not there anymore and those people that were in that meeting and brendan i always think about brendan chili peppers wrote a great song about brendan called brendan's death song oh it's a great song you didn't hear about his death
1: I, i didn't know he was one of us
0: Oh yeah, Brendan! I didn't oh, know that. Come on now,
1: he wasn't in any of the books I read about <laughs> early punk rock.
0: <laughs> you know, he, you know, and he's a, he's always was a hero to me, Brendan Mullen. Like from the moment I set foot on Hollywood Boulevard, it was like Brendan Mullen's Boulevard. He made you stuff, know what I mean? He made stuff happen. He made the all of punk rock in L.A. happen. So I think I um, met him in like 1980 or '79. And he was he was this larger-than-life character. So throughout my life, from the time of 19 until he died about four or five years ago, he was always like a guy. He's in the in Bob and the Monster movie, mm-hmm. Brendan is. Bob's the guy that had all the aces and tore it up. That's one of my favorite things, <laughs> The Brendan. And yeah. at one point, I'm hugging him and we're laughing out in front of Spaceland. I just loved Brendan Mullen. Anyways, um, and so... So when he died, it was just so sudden and so crazy. I'd seen him like four days before and it was just crazy. And it was his birthday, he died on his birthday at dinner with his best friend who's a doctor and his wife and the best friend's wife. They were just having his birthday dinner and he said, I have a headache. And then he just fell over, had a massive hemorrhage and died Mm. a few hours later. And, And after all the emotions, like I cried and it was just so heavy. After all that, I thought, God, that's a. I hope I go like that. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. No suffering. You're just like, you're just out to dinner with your people you love, and then next thing you know, you're not on the planet anymore. It's
1: better than being. That's better than being in a nursing
0: home and like. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, there are worse ways to go. That's why so, I stopped trying to kill so myself. he showed me the way. Up, you know, he
0: showed me the way, including yeah. the way into the twelve step world. He was my Eskimo, as they say. Mm-hmm. Right? Isn't that yeah, crazy? That, that, uh, why do they say that? Because there's an, a book. There's a story in the book about an Eskimo who stays sober all by himself with the AA Big Book. What does that got to do with I the Eskimo know, taking you to AA? I
1: thought. I thought. The only Eskimo I know in the big book is like you're you're all alone in Greenland and an Eskimo shows up with booze and ruins it for you because you stayed sober by isolating. Oh, isn't is that it, what it is? Isn't did? that story in the book where you, know, like you could stay sober if you were like on Greenland all by yourself, but, but then even an Eskimo could show up with a bottle and ruin your day or something. God,
0: you could sit there and pray for an Eskimo <laughs> to show up.
1: <laughs> You'd hope so. Some blubber right. and some...
0: So I want young people to have this positive attitude about it. That's why I try to be so outspoken about it and positive about it. And, and, you know, and try to be example of like what sobriety is supposed to look like. It's not supposed to look like a grumpy old dude that just sits around and complains all the time. It's supposed to look like a vitality and a, and a lust for life and a, and an interest and curiosity about life and, and issues and, and dialogue, and and it's supposed to be attractive. And I don't know that it's that attractive. I don't know that sober people are that attractive to this whole generation of millennials, who at this point, I think like at least 20% of them are drug addicted. If you look at the numbers of millennials.
1: But how do, you, how do you make that happen? You, make you that don't happen. preach
0: it then. Mm, Nobody that, preached
1: it me. But it's the same thing that happened. To, if
0: somebody at that meeting that I went to with Brendan had said, hey, have you got a big book? You got a sponsor? What are you doing to stay sober today? I would have never come back. I would not give a fuck that that burn, building burned down. And I would have a different opinion of. And every clubhouse I go to in Orange County in particular, that's what happens to newcomers. Really? They are
1: pounced upon. I, I don't see that. But then again, I go to meetings based on what they do at those meetings where that doesn't happen.
0: Well, go, go, go where the big speaker means. Most vans from rehabs or sober livings go to the big meetings, right? Okay. They don't go to men's stags all by themselves. So if you want to be a representative of what sobriety looks like, if you're only going to men's stags, which I do like going to men's stags. I go to one on Thursday nights, right? Mm-hmm. Where I get my sobriety, but I'm going to be sober. It doesn't matter whether I go on Thursday night or not. I know, I'm, I know I'm one of those assholes that should worry. I am not going to use, right? Mm-hmm. And you can disagree with me or say I'm going to use because I say I'm not going to use. That's fine. I don't care what your opinion is. You
1: just changed
0: but yourself. I, that's what people say. I've been saying. I bet a friend of mine, Jeff, because he always says, you know, you know, he preaches for like seven minutes in his share at the newcomer, mm-hmm. right? Then he says, but I'm as close to the next drink as the next guy. How is and that I, possible? I, I, how is that possible when you just you just that's not possible. You've been sober for 20 years. It's not possible. You are not as close to a drink as the person who has one day you're not right no so i said another one i said this is, i will not use the rest of the year i guarantee it and i will bet you $1000 and you can drug test me or do whatever you want to do you can hair follicle probably be easiest it was about the beginning of the year so i said we'll do three hair follicle tests throughout the year i'm betting you a $1000 i guarantee fucking you i will not use a drink I guarantee it has nothing to do with God, has nothing to do with my attendance of AA, has nothing to do with the sponsor. I guarantee you I will stay sober. And he was like, why are you getting so weird? I go, because I'm so sick of hearing you. you share the way you do. <laughs> like don't mm-hmm. preach at young, <clears throat> new people. Yeah. Share and lead by your example. Because when you preach at people, it, it's a one-way conversation from your mouth to their ears and what it, and and the big book reiterates over and over again that we share our experience, strength, and hope. Not tell, not right. shove,
1: not well, bully. It, it even says, we apologize if we appear to be lecturing. I mean, even if it appears that we're lecturing, we apologize in advance. <laughs> it, it, it's, the big book is all about stepping back, patience and tolerance, love and tolerance is our code, and that my we're primary, not going to lecture. We well, don't lecture. We don't talk down. it, And we hear the newcomer.
0: And that we, the primary purpose is to stay sober. I know how to stay sober. I know how to stay see, sober. That's see. my primary purpose. And then what's the second part of my primary purpose? To help another alcoholic to achieve sobriety. And that's where people are missing what, what helps an, a, a suffering alcoholic to achieve sobriety. Attraction is the number one thing. Mm-hmm. If you are attracted like I was to that clubhouse, like I was to Brendan, like I was to all these different people that I met, right? that attraction is the first ingredient of sobriety. And if you are, you, if you are not only not attracting people, but repulsing them, you are, <laughs> you are ant- the antithesis of the primary purpose.
1: Which is the Alano club hero, the guy that sits in back and pounds his chest and goes, I come to three meetings a day, every day, and I've been doing it for 40 years and I missed my son's wedding because I was here where I should be. You know, those guys make me nuts. I, You know, my wife hasn't seen me. <laughs> he missed he his son's wedding? You know, these guys... He missed are, his son's <laughs> he wedding? missed everything. His family is an AA orphan. You know, they're all <laughs> AA orphans because dude's at the freaking Alano Club three meetings a day. I don't know, is the world better off because of that? Maybe, because he's not drunk and beaten on those kids. That's you know? what my
0: friend always says. But, you know,
1: so, fantastic. There's those guys, but those are the guys that the new people see, and that's why I think it's so important when I meet someone who's new or someone who's struggling, I take them, I tell them, I say, we go to my sponsor's house on Monday night. One of the best meetings you could ever go to. It's, it's never more than 20 people. And I, I take them there because I found attraction there. You know, I was attracted. I go because I want to, or I take them to my home group, say, get down to here. This is where it is because that's where, that's where I find solution and attraction. And the I just only tell
0: people where I go. I'm, then, I'm at this place on yep. Sundays. I'm at this place and on meet Thursdays. Me, meet me there. Oh, you can, can you come to... with? The, I don't go to other places. People want to go to, and I don't. And I encourage if you you want to see the sobriety I like. This is where it's at, right? And and that you know people will remember that. Maybe two years from now, three years from now, they don't have to go next Thursday. I don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm.
1: There's already too many people there already. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But, but I'm just more general and more philosophical but, about it than that's most I, people. That's where
1: I found it. So I, I hope that they find it the same way. And if they don't, I hope they don't give up. I hope they don't go back to a meeting they hate. Because if they keep going back to a meeting they hate, they're going to stop going altogether because it's going to be negative reinforcement.
0: Well, I just can't. I just, I want to plant the seed that Brendan planted in me that this is a fun, cool thing. And that seed got planted in me in 1983. It still grows. It's still there. And it's, I'm reminded of it every time I drive down Fountain in West Hollywood because I think of it and I remember it and it's a good and it's a positive and it's the thing that helped me to help myself. So so that is so important. And so when you're talking about millennials who are in treatment, that's what they need. They need that seed plant. I don't expect them to get sober this year, next year, the year after. I just want them to not die and have a seed planted in them that sobriety is cool and fun and, and freeing instead of rigid, dogmatic, religious, and repulsive. And mm-hmm. I think that everybody in the 12-step community within the sound of my voice needs to remember that. Without the millennials, AA will die. Mm-hmm. It will die. If young people do not find hope in Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous. Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous will not exist in 50 years. It will not. It needs each generation. If you look at a meeting, you know, I'm a I'm a late baby boomer. You're a, a generation X, right? So sure. there's a lot of baby boomers in AA, there's a lot of Gen Xers in AA. There is not a lot of millennials in AA.
1: But there will be.
0: <clears throat> That's I, the hope. I, I'm I, hoping that the seeds are planted. I talk to thousands of millennials every couple of months. They are not really that interested in AA, and they have strong opinion about it. And that's right? too
1: bad because, and that's
0: too bad, and that's the responsibility of the recovery industry created that, and the community itself, the twelve-step community well, itself. AA
1: culture did it too, but by sometimes being very unwelcoming, and that's too bad. Well, we you got to understand
0: it's opposite to millennials, right? right? So, what have millennials been living through? that they are special and snowflakes and they get a trophy just for appearing and they are the greatest and they're their parents' best friend and they're just everything and the whole universe revolves around them. Not Correct? all of them. Not all of them. A lot of them. If they
1: were my kid, they know exactly what they are. <laughs>
0: a lot of millennials.
1: <laughs> I dealt with your kid. He thinks just like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you could you can say I didn't teach him that society taught him that.
1: Yeah, I think he learned that, but he was still it was in a recover, baseball. It was a he was home still
0: music. in baseball. He still got a trophy for not being very good, uh, unless he, soccer, he was very yeah, good. No. You, you know, he yeah. was good at soccer. Yeah, so. So, but you know what I'm saying? My older son was not good at any sports. He's still got a trophy for everyone.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Basketball, baseball.
1: Well, yeah. And then, then the self-worth isn't there and they know it's, they know it's not real. Well, it's real. not
0: achievement-oriented. But, and, it's not, and it's not, you know, here's, here's if you go back to the baby boom generation, which is me, you had to work hard to be good and be uh, celebrated or, acc- or acclaimed. Or right? cheat. I and cheated. it was just a society norm. You know, you strike out. You're you need to practice hitting more. If you hit a home run, that's because you practice hitting. You didn't get the credit yourself. Your actions got the credit. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. My dad was my basketball coach and my baseball coach. If I hit well, I there was one season in little league where I hit like 550, and I that. That winter, I had gone to the batting cages, and I had I had practiced hard a lot at hitting because I was a catcher, and I wasn't a very good hitter. And so everybody was like, we like Forrest. He's a good catcher, but if he can't hit 250, like we're not going to be able to have him. <laughs> and I wanted, one, to be on, I wanted court? to be on the Palm Desert All-Star team that went to Riverside to play, right? Mm-hmm. So I knew if I can hit, I knew how to pitch. I, I knew how to catch. I knew how to control a pitcher. I was, good, I was a good catcher because Johnny Bench was my hero, but I couldn't hit for shit. And that winter, I practiced hitting. I got a baseball and tied it to a tree and just stood out there and hit it. Hit it as it comes back. Hit it. Just you, 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 all for hours and hours and hours. And then that season, I batted 550, right? Hmm. My dad didn't give me credit for the 550. He says, because you took my advice and you went out <laughs> there and hit. And I was like, holy shit. Right? I don't even get credit for hitting 550.
1: <laughs>
0: my dad gets credit for it.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs>
0: That society, that <laughs> world mm. evaporated and disappeared. <laughs> didn't it? Didn't it?
1: Yeah. I yeah, remember like funny I that's...
0: remember thinking like, did he? Is it his? Is it because of him? It must well, be. You start to think like, yeah, I didn't hit 550. It's because my dad told me I wasn't gonna make the all-star team and I wouldn't be able to go on and represent the desert. uh, Though I was the best catcher in the desert, because I couldn't hit, I wasn't going to make it. And so he challenged me. Then I practiced and practiced and practiced and became a good hitter. And then the practice and my dad got the fucking
1: credit, not me. Is that a thing to be the best in the desert? Is that really? Oh, it's a a big
0: thing. thing. There was a lot of players went on to to, to Major League Baseball from the desert
1: that's so all there is to do is play fucking sports no, and ride motorcycles it's the only thing that happened out of there is like throw rag and throw rag rules this is 50
0: years before throw rag
1: well i don't know <laughs> i don't know this is in
0: 1974. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well you know though,
1: real real quick i in in eighth grade i was doing the same thing um but i i learned how to to cheat to get recognized and that was when we did the track and field You could go and challenge the times. And I remember Carl Harry went on to be a professional athlete, was in my eighth grade. He was super fast in the 100 yard. And I just took about 10 steps forward towards the finish line when we did the re-time. And I beat his time, even though I finished like two car lengths after him when we were doing it for real. But I cheated and I got to go to the district finals.
0: Oh really? Where was that? What town? Huntington. Yeah,
1: that was in Fountain Valley. We ended up at Huntington Beach High School, and I I did this thing where I knew I wasn't going to compete because Carl's saying you better take first place if you beat my time, so I I did a late start. <laughs> I did a late start where it looked like I slipped so that I wouldn't get in trouble. So from eighth grade, I was already a fraud. I wasn't good at anything, but I could fake playing guitar. I faked I was a good athlete. I, would fake. I was such a fake. I just hated me. Is and that, that true
0: know. or is that an AA narrative you tell yourself? That's
1: abso- it's absolutely true. I couldn't. You're I one of the most genuine
0: guys, though. That's why I wanted you to
1: do the show with it me. It took You're a so long genuine. time for me to fall into who I am.
0: So how, But genuineness is something people are born with. I, I think, because I have friends that have worked the 12 steps and worked really hard and gone to therapy and whatever be, because they were disingenuous frauds and scumbag, you know, like hustlers and just you never knew. Where the, I always call it, can I level with you? And there are certain friends of mine that you can never level with. You never know if what they're saying is going to come true or be be true. And... Even after doing all the things necessary to become a genuine person, they're still not genuine. So it's led mm-hmm. me to believe that genuineness is genetic in basis.
1: Uh, I believe that. And but you
0: are sincere and genuine and compassionate. You're the one that, when I walked into work every day, you'd be like, we got to fucking straighten this out. You know what I mean? For the advocating for the addicts, for the population, for the people that were there. That is intrinsically you, it, did, it wasn't learned.
1: Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. But this fits the way we were raised. Instead of getting a trophy or getting recognized for anything, I had to find ways to get recognized.
0: Oh, you have to win.
1: Okay, so there had to be winning done and things I wasn't good at. Well, I I wish I would
0: have known you then, Chuck. I I would have told you, take a rope, (laughs) tie it to a a tree limb, put a baseball on it, and just (laughs) hit it all winter. I
1: caught caught a baseball (laughs) with my mouth once, so that was the end of baseball, dude. That was it.
0: (laughs) Anyway, so why we're getting into parenting is because addiction has a component of parenting. And if you have an adult addict child that you're chasing around town trying to get help for, um, we're both parents and we're both you know, pretty self-aware people. That's not the best remedy. And shame of not doing such a good job as a parent is also going to kill your kid and it's going to destroy you. So we'll talk in further episodes about shame, about chasing your kids, about having good boundaries, about knowing that maybe you contributed to how what a train wreck their lives are but you're not responsible for their decisions that they make as adults. Okay?
1: All right. Fair enough. That sounds good. Because we've
0: both had to live with that. (laughs) All right. See you next time. Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call.